This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Langeta One Talk, Bongini, and good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia, and I'm your host, Aggie Dubol, here for a Wednesday. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, as we let you know what is happening on the show today, can the Marshall Islands squeeze more money out of the US for its Compact of Free Association deal? IVF, and what does this look like for our Pacific people? And Fiji tourism is on the up. For any of these stories, make sure you head to our website. Uh, in your search engine, just type ABC Pacific Beat and feel free to share any of these stories across your social media platforms. Again, I'm Aggie Tupal and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, Marshall Islands leaders are calling for a better response from the U.S. to ongoing health and environmental problems caused by historical nuclear tests on Bikini and Inuitak atolls. An 11th hour appeal for more nuclear test compensation by Marshall Islands leaders fell flat in the United States Congress mid-July. But the Marshallese government is upping the pressure as it negotiates with the U.S. on its compact of free association. Joining us this morning is... Giff Johnson, who is a journalist on Marshall Islands. And with that, I say welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time this morning, uh, Giff. For our listeners this morning, though, who don't know, if you don't mind explaining, what is a compact of free association and how can it actually really help improve health and environmental problems? So the the uh, Marshall Islands, the Federated States of Micronesia, and Palau, the three North Pacific nations uh, that are associated with the United States, they were once United Nations trust territories uh, back in the from World War II onward. And so to change that status, uh, change that colonial status, they negotiated a status called free association, somewhat like what the Cook Islands has with New Zealand. Uh, and it essentially allows them to have uh, their full UN members. Now they have basic control of, of their foreign affairs and their own own affairs uh, while ceding authority for defense and security to the United States, including in the Marshall Islands, uh, the Kwajalein Missile Range, which is the primary testing site for long range missiles that the U.S. Uh, tests and develops out here. In any event, the compact first came in in 1986. We're now about to start the third funding arrangement, and that's what these negotiations have been all about between Washington and the Marshall Islands, the Micronesia and Palau. Uh, and in light of the geopolitical struggle in the Pacific between China and the U.S., it's given more visibility to the islands lately and possibly a little bit of leverage uh, in their talks with the U.S. So the Marshalls has been pushing uh, for increased compensation uh, for the nuclear test legacy. And uh, so far, like it's it's been able to get some, but it's been unsuccessful from the standpoint of nuclear victims who saw this as a real opportunity to get the United States to finally uh, address the range of nuclear uh, problems that still exist today from the 67 nuclear weapons tests here. 
Mm, well, I mean, yeah, so when we look at the Compact of Free Association, we understand Palau and the Federated States of Micronesia have already signed. Does it really just come down to them trying to squeeze a little bit more money? I mean, why has Marshall Islands yet to finalise their agreement? Well, in actual fact, the Marshall Islands just a few days ago signed off on the <clears throat> the money terms of the compact agreeing to what the U.S. has offered. And essentially that offer uh, is both funding for, this is a new 20-year package, it's funding for both government operations uh, as well as a $700 million injection into the trust fund, which the United States won't say is for nuclear compensation because it doesn't want to admit liability or any further responsibility on the matter, uh, but which is maybe for nuclear test compensation. And the terms of that have not yet been worked out. The, 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 the challenge on this is, is the Marshall Islands, <clears throat> as a result of the first compact, the treaty between the United States and the Marshall Islands established a nuclear claims tribunal to adjudicate all nuclear claims. And that tribunal did its work pursuant to the treaty and to law. And it determined that the, the awards that were needed for nuclear test damages were were in the billions of dollars, but they were given very little money. So when they went back to the U.S. and said, here, we've got this $3 billion, over $3 billion of, of adjudicated awards that we want the U.S. to fund, the U.S. has just ignored it. And in this latest round of discussions, you know, they started by saying, well, we'll give you a couple hundred million. Well, we'll give you, you know, and it finally got up to 700 million. Uh, on a three over three billion dollar claim, so that's just the state of play. And the Marshalls has accepted those numbers, and so I think they're hoping to continue discussions with with the U.S. Congress. Uh, but you know, it, it doesn't look very hopeful uh, to getting more. And meantime, the U.S. Congress is widening. Uh, uh, compensation programs for Americans <laughs> who were affected by nuclear weapons testing. So it's a real irony and not lost on Marshallese that the unfairness of how the United States deals with the exposure of its own citizens, who are definitely due and, and need compensation, and how it addresses the Marshall Islands compensation needs. Yeah, you pretty much have already answered my next question. I was going to ask whether or not uh, you know the Marshallese are in a good position to get more money uh, out of this deal. What what then though is the public sentiment like in the Marshall Islands? Is there much support for the US? Well, you know, the Marshall Islands is a very pro-US country, and we the Marshalls has been associated with the United States since the end of World War II. And the United States has put, you know, a lot of money in. People depend on U.S. funding for salaries, for health care, for education, for so many things. And uniquely for these three countries in the North Pacific, because of the close relationship, they get visa-free access to the United States. So currently, about half of all Marshall Islanders now reside in the United States. And I think this is one thing that we've really seen in, in recent decades, I mean, I've been here for a long time, is more and more people go out to get health care that they can't get here. I mean, you might think it's surprising 
that in a country that had 67 nuclear tests, many of them hydrogen bombs, there's no cancer treatment program. Well, there isn't. And for example, my first wife who died of cancer, when she was going through that process, she, we had to go to Honolulu to access health care. And so that's, you know, one of these legacies of the nuclear test situation is that people can't get care here. They're on their own and they just have to find ways to get care in Hawaii or California or Washington or, or Oregon, places like that. Well, then I'm wondering, though, then, is this the best deal that the U.S. are offering uh, the Marshall Islands then? Well, the U.S., the the negotiators who are like staff level people, they just say, well, this is all the money we have. And they're not the people who should be like making the decision because you have a lot of people in the U.S. government who are like staff level, have been working in the government for many years, and they'll just look at the, the nuclear claims tribunal award of, you know, that's now valued at over three billion dollars. And they'll just, oh, that's too much money. But that went through an adjudicated process that took years and years and years to come to those awards for land damage, for nuclear cleanup, for uh, medical compensation, and so on. And if the U.S. government people really believe that that's too much, well, then put it into a, a process to have it vetted give the Marshallese their day in court and put those uh, awards on the table in front of a U.S. judge or alternatively go to arbitration, pick three arbitration judges and put the awards on the table and let them determine are these reasonable or not. But the U.S. government won't do this. And so therefore, it's able to just kind of flick these off the table. And you got to understand, this is a country of 40,000 people. I mean, we don't have the negotiating power that the United States has, the lawyers, the Justice Department, you know, the the multiple ambassadors, you know, being the head negotiator and give him his due for the U.S., the head negotiator. He was the U.S. negotiator with North Korea. So he knows what he's doing, right? He's a competent negotiator. And we don't have that level of skill in our team of people who really understand the give and take and nuances of negotiation, just like in the first compact back in the 1970s and 80s when they were negotiating. I mean, the U.S. at that time covered up all the information. There was no access to all these classified documents showing the extent of the nuclear fallout. And so the agreement was reached. A a money figure of $150 million was just pulled out of the air and said, well, here, this is what we'll give you. So people accepted it. And then 10, 15 years later, all these classified documents were declassified. And we started to learn the full more about the full extent of the exposures out here, which has fueled efforts to try to get the U.S. to own up to greater compensation. So there's some potentially in this new compact proposed arrangement, uh, which has been been agreed to by the government's cabinet just in the last few days. Uh, and so now it goes into sort of a final negotiating sprint to try to get things done before September 30th next month, which is when the current 20-year funding arrangement ends and this new agreement, in theory, is supposed to come into play. 
Mm. I'm wondering, though, then, do you think the US's strategy will work? I mean, is there a point where you think the US will concede and give more attention to ongoing health and environmental issues in the country? It's really hard to say. I mean, after the first compact, when it came up for renewing the the funding arrangement in the early 2000s, the nuclear thing was just pushed off the table and wasn't even considered. And the only reason that it's gotten back on is largely due to the geopolitical situation in the Pacific, which has given greater visibility to the islands. And of course, the U.S. is under a bit of pressure because the rest of the Pacific looks to the north as the the closest allies of the United States. And so the United States is making a lot of promises and opening up new embassies in various South Pacific countries. And I think from the South Pacific folks' point of view is they look to the north. Is the U.S. taking care of its best allies? Are they happy with their arrangements? And if they're not, that says a lot about how will the U.S. deal with its second and third tier allies in the South, right? Because you have to say Palau, Micronesia, and the Marshall Islands are absolutely the the, the longest standing, uh, closest allies of the United States. So it kind of remains to be seen how this so this nuclear uh, some nuclear compensation in the new compact funding period will play. And it's certainly, you know, people here will probably go along with it just because it's money on the table that the U.S. has said, well, we'll, we'll we're OK with that. But are they satisfied with it? No, absolutely not. And you can see that from, you know, listening to people in the parliament and just generally, I mean, it's it's. Marshall Islanders who are, you know, they've been victims of nuclear tests. They're just used to it by now. The United States minimizing, reducing, trying to just distance itself from the the situation of the nuclear test legacy. Yeah, but once you sort of walk away from something like that, I mean, if, if Marshall Islands walk away from this compact deal to somehow attempt to continue to try and increase this funding. I mean, yeah, what, what is the in case for this? The According, I talked to the chief negotiator for the Marshall Islands a few days ago, and he said from their discussions in Washington uh, in the last couple of weeks that a lot of the f- friends of the Marshall Islands in Congress, while urging them to take this Uh, take the agreement as it's presented, because that is factored in for for this new fiscal year coming up, that they offered to work with the Marshall Islands on these outstanding issues. So, you know, it's possible that some things will continue to to develop. I mean, the fact that the U.S. Congress, like just in the last couple of several days, the U.S. Senate has adopted, this isn't passed, it's still got to go through the House, but the Senate has passed legislation expanding the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act of 1990 to include more people uh, and, interestingly, Guam, which is 1,500 miles uh, west of the Marshall Islands. So, you know, it's like the Marshallese, I mean, that may be a way for the Marshall Islands to get a little traction by saying, well, you know, you folks keep expanding and offering compensation to Americans. 
and who were affected. Well, we were affected many, much worse because you tested all the hydrogen bombs out here. They didn't test hydrogen bombs in America. And so if you're going to keep passing legislation to expand your compensation program for Americans, how about we address the Marshall Islands claims in a fair and, and just way, the same way that you look at American claims. And when you put money in for the Americans who deserve compensation, when that money runs out and you still have claims, the U.S. Congress puts more money in. But that isn't the case in the Marshall Islands to the extent that's needed. Uh, Giff, we just want to appreciate your time this morning. Really great insight into what is happening there in the Marshall Islands. Uh, Hopefully we can catch up next time, but appreciate you coming on the show. My pleasure. No worries. Uh, That, of course, is Giff Johnson, a journalist in Marshall Islands, right here on Pacific Beat. Well, uh, to New Zealand and, of course, Australia, we cover the story here because it's a study about uncovering the effects of in vitro fertilisation, or better known as IVF, on Pacific people and how it could better serve them. The three-year-long study will look at communities across Australia and New Zealand. So Wellington University lecturer Dr Sarah Messina-Clark and Otago University's Dr Edmund Fehoko explain how the research will be conducted and why it's important. We realised that there was a, a real gap in the knowledge I mean, around the same time, some New Zealand data came out that showed that Pacific peoples actually experience higher levels of infertility than other ethnicities, uh, but seek assisted reproduction at lower rates. So there's this discrepancy between that experience of infertility and getting treatments. And so that's really where the project came from. But in terms of raising the awareness that assisted reproductive technologies exist in terms of Pacific communities and also other ethnic communities as well, that's quite new at the moment, yeah. And so, you know, just similar to what to what Zara mentioned, you know, we 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 know of Pacific people who are currently going through infertility issues, but not seeking the assisted reproductive side in terms of looking at whether scientific methods can can support them uh, with the hope of of having a child as well. And I guess I guess the thing that we haven't really touched on um, and is probably the biggest barrier for most people is the cost. So in, in Aotearoa, you can, majority of cycles are privately funded cycles. Um, and then you can go in and try to get, I guess, approval or be approved to get a publicly funded cycle. And so it's at a minimum uh, for a, a woman undergoing like an egg collection IVF type situation, it costs upwards of $10,000. So Cost-wise, it's out of the budget for most people, not just specific peoples, but most people. Would you know why, obviously not yet, but would you have an idea why those barriers um, happen with specific people? Um, I'll give an example, bro, and just to kind of contextualize this idea that um, why, why Pacific. Imagine being married, okay? um, and then the, the very first question you get asked is, are you going to have a child? Or you're going to have children. And then first year goes by, saw honeymoon phase. Second year goes by, third year goes by, and you're still being asked the question, are you going to have a child? And then you're experiencing all these mental health issues and challenges because of the questions that you're being bombarded by communities and society 
of, of the importance of having a child. And in Pacific Spaces, having a child is a blessing, but also the opportunity to pass on generation of, of knowledge, land, of financial stability, all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's the challenge that our Pacific community is currently facing at the moment. That's just one of many examples, not just the cultural barriers, but you have the spiritual barriers in terms of church, the role of spirituality in this, and and all that kind of stuff. So, Something that's actually gained a lot of attention here in Aotearoa is the, the use of BMI cutoff. So what they do to determine publicly funded cycles is you have to satisfy a certain clinical criteria. And so it's got a name here in Aotearoa, the acronym CPAC, but what they do is say a person, a person goes to their GP and they say, we've been trying to have a child for over a year. We've been unsuccessful. So the clinician says, yep, we're going to refer you to the fertility clinic. You show up at the fertility clinic and they put you through this assessment. And unfortunately, we still use BMI cutoffs to prioritize our publicly funded treatments. So even before they assess them with the clinical pro- uh, priority criteria. They look at the BMI, and if a patient is too has their BMI is too high, they're immediately ineligible until they lose weight. How how are you going to undertake the research? In uh, three phases. The first one is to just look at the the numbers. So there's really no data um, to that speaks to how many Pacific peoples actually use art. Um, what types of assisted reproduction they use. And so the first part of the study will actually access um, a database that records all of the art cycles that are undertaken in Australia and New Zealand, just to give us those baseline those baseline numbers so that, you know, if we were in a situation like this, we could tell you that 20% of Pacific people that experience infertility will access art, they use IVF, et cetera, et cetera. We can't at this point because none of that exists. So that's the first part, really a, a quantitative approach. And part two is the qualitative where I'll carry out using Pacific research methods and methodologies to carry out Dalai or discussions uh, with uh, people who have gone through not just infertility, but also have, who have gone through um, assisted reproductive um, and capture their experiences. So, uh, I'm pretty much talking to everyone and mm-hmm. anyone, I guess. And then phase three. Yeah, phase three is um, we've decided to do use a biomedical approach as well. And so this just comes back to those conversations around whether BMI is an appropriate way to decide whether or not someone qualifies. What we want to do is really challenge that. And so we think BMI doesn't actually reflect body composition. And so often things like muscle and bone weigh more than fat. But when you just look at the number of someone's weight, if you have a high weight, you'll have a high BMI. Um, and there's there's documented data from New Zealand that Pacific peoples actually have a different body composition compared to other ethnicities. And so we think that it's actually increased body fat that impacts assisted reproduction outcomes. And so I'm going to use a lab-based model to try to test um, whether it is this increased body fat. And we're going to do that in a couple of ways. But I think the other strength to it is trying to understand how. Um, and because when we understand how increased adiposity or fat affects um, fertility, you can develop better treatments because the ones that we have currently just don't work um, as well for for larger people. Mm, Such an interesting study there that's going to happen. Wellington University lecturer there, Dr. Sarah Messina-Clark and Otago University's Dr. Edmund Fehoko. 
Well, beekeeping, it involves a lot of attention to detail. Something Australia is helping our Pacific neighbours with as part of a project to improve the profitability and productivity of the industry. And as Landline's Kerry State discovered, when it comes to building a bee business, one woman in Fiji goes further than most. As the rain pours down on Fiji's third largest island, Tavuni, Atronisha wades through a fast-rising river holding a wild beehive. You don't give up easily, do you? No. (laughs) (laughs) And did you think twice about walking back over? Because I'm like yelling... Don't come over. Don't yeah. c- and you just no, this is what it's like uh, to work like uh, I know about this river. You know. It's so it's not that deep. So I man- I can manage to you can cross manage it, it. yeah. <laughs> Atro is the first woman to be named Fiji's beekeeper of the year, taking extraordinary steps to build her business from 1 to 160 hives, largely finding them in the wild. Some are very high, but still, if we want that hive to be brought home to increase our hives, we have to climb up <laughs> and then get those hives down. How many trees have you climbed? Uh, I have climbed a few, but uh, houses also, houses on top of the roofs. She's also branched out into box making with her husband, and now this family business has provided enough income to kickstart another. Recently, I managed to open a barber shop for my son. It is one of the professional barber shops in the area. Now, the first thing that's going to go into your pot, it's going to be beeswax. She's also planning to make products from her beeswax after attending value-adding workshops at the inaugural Pacific Islands Beekeeping Congress. And this wax has been melted up to 68 degrees. A congress which is the culmination of an Australian research and training project aimed at improving the profitability and productivity of beekeeping in the region. Smoke it, whatever, you leave it. And in the middle of all the buzz is the man leading the project. Affectionately nicknamed Queen Bee by some, Australian scientist and academic Cooper Shooton. I fell in love with beekeeping. I was at high school, I got a job with a local beekeeper and I was basically trying to help mum pay the bills. I fell in love with you know, how fascinating they are and fell in love with being in the forest. And then from there, when I was doing my honours degree, I really realised how amazing beekeeping is and it has the ability to be able to generate income for people without damaging the environment. So I was able to connect that love of the environment with helping people. I'm looking forward to having you guys come and stay at my house sometime. It'll be really fun. Cooper has spent the last few years working with farmers in Fiji and Papua New Guinea on everything from biosecurity and breeding to livestock management and marketing. This isn't about handing out, it's about helping out, it's about working with people overseas and we've seen beekeeping programs happening in many developing countries and they just don't work. The research that we've done shows that if you give 100 beekeepers some beehives and a week of training and come back in two or three years you'd be lucky to have one or two of them left. So our research is really trying to understand process to actually make these programs sustainable so that when the program ends the beekeeping industries have got a lot more strength and sustainability to grow themselves. This is your office? Yeah. Someone who has definitely grown his business is the president of the country's beekeepers association, Nilesh Kumar, who took it up as a hobby in 2009 after being introduced to bees by a friend. Do you like coming out here because you just get away from it all? Yeah, away from everybody. Yeah. 
when I go and walk in the yard, like it's peace and quiet. It gives me happiness to see the bees, how they walk, and the different types of jobs they do in the hive. Especially when the honey season kicks off. This frame is ready to harvest. Can you see it's completely yes. full? His passion for these hard workers prompted a controversial career change. I'm looking after them and they are also looking after me. And how well have they looked after you so far? Like, I resigned my full-time job because I could earn enough to look after myself. You were a teacher before, hey? I was a school teacher, yes. What did your family think when you started this? Ah, uh, they were not happy. <laughs> Why was that? Because nobody wanted me to leave my formal job and do beekeeping. But they've come round to the idea as he's turned his hobby into a commercial business, expanding from six to 400 hives and ticking off life goals along the way. I had a dream that I want to build a house. I had enough money and I built my house in Nandy. That income has taken some big hits, though. He lost 40% of his hives when Cyclone Winston hit, and last year he lost half of his hives when Varroa mites got in. I was thinking that everything is right, but it wasn't. It was a very bad impact, but now we are ready. It won't happen this year. You're much more prepared? Yes. While Australia is still aiming to eradicate varroa mites, with the bee industry currently trying to get on top of an outbreak in New South Wales, Fiji is learning to live with the parasite, which spread across the country after being discovered in 2018. Australian researchers are helping Fijian beekeepers find and manage pests, but Cooper Shooton says it's a two-way education. We've got a lot of lessons that we could learn from you know, our nearest neighbours in lots of ways when it comes to practically managing a lot of these pests and diseases. These guys are living and breathing it every day. And that report there by Landlines at Kerry State. Up shortly, we'll have our news wrap from around the region with producer Carl Evans. I'm Aggie Dubol and you're tuning into Pacific Beat. Love sport? Tune in to Can You Be More Pacific with Sarah Nangama and Dean Halatau. Jerry Tawai will not be part of the run-on team. Now, this is the first time in five years after the men's team had won the Hong Kong Sevens that he will not be featuring. Yeah, no good for Fiji. For any fans of Fiji, I'm not seeing him out in the field. Jerry is the king of Sevens. Oh, I probably shouldn't say that because that could rub the Serepi fans quite wrong. <laughs> Can You Be More Pacific? Thursdays from 6 PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. That's right, it is that time where we have producer Carl Evans joining us to give us the latest uh, from around the region with our news wrap. With that again, I say good morning. How's it going? Happy hump day, Aggie. I'm, I'm going well. <laughs> the countdown to Friday is on. Yay! <laughs> uh, but look, of course, with the stories that we got, uh, the US Coast Guard, uh, they've been given increased powers to operate in PNG waters. What are they? Yeah, so uh, US Coast Guard officers patrolling Papua New Guinea waters will soon have the authority to board foreign vessels are suspected of illegal activity under a new maritime law enforcement agreement between PNG and the US. So this was reported by Reuters uh, late yesterday and comes... Uh, uh, after a meeting between U.S. and Australian Defence and Foreign Ministers on Saturday, where it was announced the U.S. Coast Guard would take on a bigger maritime security role across the Pacific Islands. So under these new powers, Coast Guard officers will be able to board and search suspect vessels on PNG's behalf without the requirement for a uh, PNG law officer to be present. That's a big move. But is this actually the first time the U.S. Coast Guard 
have been granted powers like this in the Pacific? Yeah, it is. It is a big move, and it's it's yeah, it's somewhat unprecedented. So um, they have what's called these these ship rider deals uh, with a dozen other Pacific countries, uh, which they they per- periodically use to patrol for illegal fishing. Uh, but this deal is the first time uh, a nation with which the US does not have full defence responsibility uh, will be able to patrol waters uh, essentially unobserved. So uh, PNG uh, Prime Minister James Marape, uh, he's previously said that his country is been unable to patrol um, its uh, its economic zone, which is a, about 2.7 million uh, square kilometres. And as a result, things like illegal fishing, uh, even drug trafficking were able to take place. So I guess this will go uh, some ways to, to mitigating that. But you just yeah, you just got to hope that without that scrutiny on board that it, it gets done the right way. Nice, nice. Thank you for that. Uh, we head to Vanuatu where the Prime Minister is hopeful uh, a solution to an island dispute with France could resolve itself soon. Is that right? That's right. So uh, Ishmael Kalkasaus has a boundary issue over two southern islands, and Matthew and Hunter, uh, that those islands are called, they could be resolved before the end of the year. So this is reported by RNZ, and it comes after four chiefs handed a petition to uh, French President Emmanuel Macron over the dispute uh, during his visit last week. So the two islands are held by New Caledonia currently, um, but southern Vanuatu chiefs and politicians say they are sacred to the new Vanuatu people and have traditionally been a place to perform religious and customary ceremonies. So the chiefs informed uh, Mr. Macron uh, uh, as much, and uh, they said, they also said they can't understand why France has claimed them. Um, they have torn away a vital part of Vanuatu's uh, territory and, and it's prevented uh, local people from performing those customary ceremonies. Wondering though, so has Mr. Macron responded? Well, I couldn't find any uh, any quoted response. Uh, however, given uh, Ishmael Kalkasau's comments and that he is hopeful, I'm sure, well, I'm assuming a dialogue, some sort of dialogue has taken place. But yeah, I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens. Absolutely. Uh, look, we head to, uh, sorry, sports. Uh, the president of FIFA has actually visited a number of Pacific countries in recent days. Why is that? Yeah, it's kind of gone under the radar, this, and has really only been uh, announced recently. But the uh, FIFA president uh, Gianni Infantino uh, has used the Women's World Cup in New Zealand and Australia as an opportunity to visit a number of, of OFC member associations. That's the Oceania, Oceania Football Confederation. So back on July 19, in an address to the OFC in Auckland, he stated his intention to visit a number of places in the Pacific. And since then, he's visited Tahiti, the Cook Islands, uh, American Samoa, Samoa and Tonga, with plans to visit some other OFC members over the next couple of weeks. I like that. I'm wondering, what was his impression of the Pacific, though? Well, RNZ uh, quoted a Cook Islands Football Association spokesperson uh, who said Mr Infantino was surprised by the passion for the game on the islands. Uh, I understand children were lining up to take photographs with him. Uh, While in Samoa, he inspected the uh, Apia Park project um, uh, where they're they're building uh, new football pitches. Uh, In Tonga, he visited sites where football infrastructure is being built, uh, including a new TFA stadium, uh, which is due for completion next year. Um, Other than that, information is quite vague, uh, but he says the visit is more than just symbolic. And uh, look, as we know, there are plans, hopefully plans, for an OFC professional competition to one day take place. So I'd be keen to know if, um, you know, if he thinks that these nations, you know, could potentially support a team of their own in in a a professional competition. So that's something I'm hoping to ask the uh, OFC president on the sports show this Friday. So we'll see. Oh, nice. I like that. Uh, Carl, I just often think, um, yes, he may be surprised, but I... When you're from the Pacific Islands, 
you know that you don't have much, right? Mm. And so when you have the opportunity to to get something like uh, the prospect or the possibility of being able to want to play a sport like that, uh, it does mean a lot to our Pacific people. So, you know. I hope he understands that it was probably a very important visit for those kids. I hope so too. Yeah. And by the sounds of it, it was the first time he's uh, he's been there. If he was surprised at the yeah. passion, so yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good. That's so good to hear. Look, thank you again, Carl, for our news wrap uh, this morning. Really appreciate it. Uh, let's carry on because coming up next, we're going to be talking all things about Fiji tourism right here on Pacific Beat. Celebrate the pride of the Pacific. You know, we're proud of our country and our heritage. Stay up to date with all the latest sporting news. So emotional every time you go out there and you sing the, you know, the national anthem. And hear inspiring stories from some of the Pacific's finest athletes. I've grown so much confidence within myself and I never thought I would be the player that I am today. Watch That Pacific Sports Show Wednesday nights at 7 PNG time on ABC Australia. Well, Fiji's critically important tourism sector is continuing to rebound strongly from the pain inflicted by COVID pandemic border closures. There's an annual visitor survey that shows more than half a million holidaymakers, mostly from Australia, New Zealand and the United States, came to the country between April and December last year. All up, they spent more than two billion Fijian dollars on airfares, accommodation, food, drinks, shopping and even tours. So joining us to discuss the figures is the CEO of Tourism Fiji, Brent Hill. With that, I say Nissan Bolivinaka and welcome to the show. Yeah, Andre, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, no worries. Well, look, you must be happy with the results of the visitor survey. Yeah, we're really excited. Yeah, thank you. It's um, it's great to see. It's, uh, you know, a lot of hard work by the, the industry as a whole. Um, and, you know, seeing the numbers come through, you know, that we'd suspected that the the spend was higher and uh and we knew that you know numbers were coming in really strong but yeah to see the average spend per visitor go up to around three and a half thousand um is really really encouraging and and what it means for fiji is incredible so we're 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 really pleased Mm. how do the figures sort of compare to the situation uh before the pandemic i mean has the tourism industry fully rebounded yeah, we look. We're about 12, uh, 12 months ahead of schedule, which uh, is is phenomenal. We didn't think we'd be in this position this this quickly. Um, tourists are certainly spending more, uh, which is which is great. They're they're generally staying about the same amount of time uh, in in Fiji, but in terms of you know overall the impact on the economy, it's um, it's up on twenty nineteen. So we're we're in sort of uncharted territory, which you know is quite unbelievable given where we were. And and certainly for the tourism industry, it's a real credit to everyone who, um, you know, from the airline, you know, through to all of our hotels and operators to, to you know, be ready and to be able to handle things as well as we did. Because mm. uh, I look at some of these figures and uh, some are pretty incredible in regards to satisfaction figures. Uh, 93% yeah. of people were satisfied, right? 92% of people uh, would recommend Fiji and even 81% said that they would return. Pretty satisfying, right? Uh, incredible, incredible. And, and you know, you only have to think about last year, um, you know, this survey was done over a 12-month period. And, and last year, you remember all the, you know, bags being lost around Europe and carnage in airports and all that kind of craziness. And, and that's something we worked really hard on. Like if, if you've flown into Fiji, you know, you get the um, serenaders in the airport right off the bat. And, you know, we work really closely with immigration to make the airport process really smooth. 
Um, and then, of course, it's just the the, the natural, you know, Fijian um, happiness that that comes through, and and you know, all of those things combine mean that you know people I think have, have found, hey, you know, Fiji's where they want to be at, and really succeeding in terms of what they want as a a tourism trip and a holiday. Yeah, look, even with all those great numbers, uh, ahead of the reopening of borders, though, was there any sort of concerns about the industry maybe finding enough workers to meet the demands of international tourists? Or or was that still an issue? Yeah. No, definitely. And it it still is today because obviously, um, you know, we've got the big brothers of Australia and New Zealand and then even further away um, all looking for for workers as, as well. So, yeah, that like that's certainly been been difficult. We've had a lot of new teams, as you can imagine. So you know, you you lose a lot of experience. You've got to get a lot of new people through. We're working really hard with our universities here and getting a lot of graduates and interns through. But obviously, that means that um, you know that that can be difficult just to you know gel through new management systems, all that kind of stuff. So to see people saying um, they'd recommend Fiji and they were really satisfied with their trip, that, that's a real credit to everyone who's sort of knuckled down and, and made that work because for sure it's been a challenge. Um, you know, the headline numbers are fantastic, but the, underneath it all is a lot of hard work. Yeah, look, uh, I'm sure you're well aware of this uh, part of the story. You know, we've been hearing a lot recently from several countries that Australia and New Zealand's uh, seasonal worker programs, right, are draining workers from mm. local economies. Yeah. Is that still an issue for Fiji's tourism industry? Yeah, it is. It is. And, uh, you know, from that perspective, of course, we can't, you know, begrudge um, people wanting to to take opportunity that's available to them and, and look after their families and, you know, of course, we see things like remittances coming back here um, to Fiji from those workers. But at the same time, what we want to try and do is, you know, put something in place that um, incentivizes, you know, guys to stay here. Um, and what, what we're seeing is, you know, really good academy programs and, and really trying to work with, you know, young people coming through as, as well that, that they can see a career path here in Fiji. Um, and then hopefully, you know, things like, um, you know, minimum wage and 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 wage in the um, in the tourism industry will help as well. So, yeah, it's, look, it's definitely a factor. It's a, it's a factor globally, but it certainly impacts on us in in Fiji. So, it's something where we're always working with because there's no easy uh, silver bullet solution to that one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, Bill. Like, where to from here, though? Do you expect to see these kinds of figures and improvements to continue? Yeah, it's a, look, it's a great question because um, really, to be honest, we're, we're starting to get uh, a little stretched in terms of our accommodation. So the really exciting thing, I guess, now is we're working really hard on investment and, and looking at how we can um, sustainably grow the supply and, and you know, bringing in, you know, more uh, accommodation and so on and encouraging some of our local investors and um, potentially some of our partners, you know, around the world to to come into Fiji. And and so that's that started to happen. So we're starting to see a little bit of, you know, a construction boom happening in, in Fiji, which is good. And of course, you know, that's all being done through a lens of sustainability, which, which is really, really good. So yeah, we, I don't think we'll have the spectacular year on year growth, but I do hope that we can sort of, you know, stay at and maintain this, this sort of level uh, until we add, you know, more of that new accommodation that that's coming in um but it's great i mean what it means for for fiji is is quite incredible and you you can see and feel the buzz like i I live here in nandi and 
you can definitely see the impact um, on so many other areas like things like retail and, and so on as well that benefit. Look, if there was any sort of advertisement that you'd want to put out there for anyone to want to visit Fiji, so I feel like that is the next thing on my list. Uh, to add to those numbers, I mean, what is it about Fiji that people really want to come there? Oh, you, de- you definitely have to come. I mean, we have um, all the things that you think about um, in, in your head in terms of, you know, the the sun and the sand and the beautiful islands and, and so on. But the, of course, the Fijian people are, are the, the, the real trump card, you know, just that warmth and friendliness you're made to feel at home right from the get-go. But I think the thing that we're really excited about sharing with a lot of people is um, the Fijian culture. Um, we're, we're, we're really concentrating a lot on, you know, getting people out of resorts, you know, getting into the hinterland, experiencing, you know, places, things like, you know, waterfalls and some of these amazing um, other tours that we've got as well as the traditional ones that people expect, like the diving and snorkeling and so on. So, yeah, our, our theme is where happiness comes naturally. And I think, you know, at the moment with lots of stresses on people, um, I think it fits really well. I think that's why people are, are coming here because who doesn't want to feel happy and relaxed? Well, you've definitely sold it for me, <laughs> so I really appreciate uh, you joining us this morning. So I just no want to say vinaka. Vinaka vaklevu. And that was Brent Hill, CEO of Tourism Fiji, here on Pacific Beat. Well, we head back here to Australia where Prime Minister... Anthony Albanese uh, has welcomed news that the Great Barrier Reef will avoid being officially labelled as in danger by the World Heritage Committee. But he concedes the decision to delay the in danger classification doesn't mean Australia's in the clear, uh, with UNESCO expecting a progress report on the health of the reef in six months' time, as Bridget Fitzgerald reports. Tony Fonts travelled to Australia from California in the 1970s with one goal in mind, to visit the Great Barrier Reef. I just decided I'd never go home, so here I am. As a dive operator in the Whitsundays, Tony Fonts has spent much of those 40 years immersed in the reef, a witness to both its breathtaking beauty and the way it's changed over time. I've seen myself a decline in the health of the reef. I'm not a scientist, but I do have eyes, and uh, when you see beautiful corals one day and not the next, it's rather alarming. So unfortunately, I can only say that the reef health has certainly declined. Due to a number of factors affecting its health, the Great Barrier Reef was due to be added to a list of in-danger World Heritage Sites. The list identifies sites that are under threat of losing the unique qualities that earned them World Heritage status in the first place. But in a report released overnight, United Nations agency UNESCO has recommended the decision to classify the reef as in-danger should be delayed. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says the decision highlights his government's progress on climate change. We're committed to better protecting our precious Great Barrier Reef and this decision is evidence of that. UNESCO's recommendation to delay the in-danger listing was informed by a number of things, including the passing of Australia's Climate Change Act, which legislated the target of a 43% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, as well as commitments to reduce land clearing and improvements in water quality. The draft decision cites, to quote the decision, significant progress being made on climate change, water quality and sustainable fishing all putting the reef on a stronger and more sustainable path. 
Australia must now deliver a progress report on the Great Barrier Reef to UNESCO by the 1st of February. The Prime Minister again. Of course this decision doesn't mean the reef is in the clear, but it does confirm that Labor's policies are making a real difference. The Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek says the decision demonstrates the government's taking climate change seriously. As sources close to UNESCO told Le Monde a little while ago, between the previous government and this government, it's a bit like night and day. UNESCO's report also found there's been what's described as a period of recovery on the reef since 2019. Opposition Environment spokesman John O'Dunniam says Labor's claim that it's responsible for improving the health of the reef is incorrect correct and misleading. It is laughable for anyone to think that Labor have single-handedly saved the reef through passing a bit of legislation. There is a lot that goes into this. It is something that multiple governments have done with the best of intention over a long period of time, including and especially the coalition government. Professor of Marine Biology at James Cook University, Jody Rummer, says the federal and Queensland governments will need to demonstrate to UNESCO they've made further improvements on environmental and regulatory policies in the months ahead. We need to be ending our reliance on the burning of fossil fuels and making those commitments to reduce emissions by 75 percent, and that's in this decade. The World Heritage Committee will vote on whether to uphold UNESCO's advice at a meeting in September. And that is Bridget Fitzgerald there with that report. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Uh, recapping today's show, the Marshallese government is upping the pressure for more nuclear compensation as it negotiates with the US on its compact of free association. Marshall Islands journalist Giff Johnson says the government will likely accept what they've given, but he doesn't expect residents to be satisfied. Marshall Islanders who are, you know, they've been victims of nuclear tests. They're just used to it by now. The United States minimizing, reducing, trying to just distance itself from the, the situation of the nuclear test legacy. Uh, follow us on Facebook, ABC Pacific. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia, though. News is next, followed by Jacob Maguire on Nisha Daily. Until next time, I'm Aggie Dubon. Appreciate your company here on Pacific Beat.